We do read in verse 45 of Luke 19 that he, that is Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So Jesus, having made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and you recall that as we looked at that event over the last couple of weeks, that Jesus making his way into the city, it's the second time he wept over Jerusalem. A couple of months before that, as we read in Luke chapter 13, Jesus, thinking about Jerusalem, began to weep over Jerusalem, saying that your house is left to you desolate um, because I long to gather you uh, to myself, like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing to come. And, and at this time, in, in the last week of his ministry, as he made his, what is called the triumphal entry into the holy city, he looked over the city, he's weeping, and he says to them that uh, you should have known the day of your visitation. You should have known in this your day the things that make for your peace. But now your enemies are going to surround you. They're going to build an embankment against you. And they're going to level you. And they're going to uh, leave not one stone upon another. And of course, Jesus was talking about 38 years after this time in 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legions would surround Jerusalem and they would starve the city out. Many were starving. And then finally they broke through the city as Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time and 100,000 were taken off into slavery. And so it was great devastation and death and destruction that took place. Jesus is weeping. You didn't know what makes for your peace. And now your enemies are going to level you. And not only was he weeping over what will happen, but he is weeping now presently at what was taking place at the temple during the feast. Remember that this is Passover. Many people have made their way into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And they are going to be sacrificing lambs to celebrate that feast. And now as Jesus comes into the city, keep in mind that, that the people are cheering. They're waving the palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord, saved now. And as they are ascribing that title of Messiah to him, he knows that there is something that is really wrong at this feast, that there are things that are taking place that aren't right, knowing that in a few days that crowds are going to be crying out, crucify him, for we will not have this man rule over us, because they were expecting him, as the chapter tells us in verse 11, that the kingdom of God would appear immediately, but also with the religious leaders. And, and don't just think that as we read this event, Jesus cleansing the temple, and most of us are very familiar with that story, that Jesus comes in and, you know, the people are waving the palm branches, and it's, I mean, a happening scene. The whole city was moved, and he sees what's going on in the temple, and he's on this emotional high, so he goes in and he, he overturns the tables and drives out those who sold 
or those, you know, uh, that uh, were there doing all the business there in the temple. Don't just think that, you know, he did that out of an emotional response, that is. Now, Marx tells us, gives us some little bit more detail, that after he made his triumphal entry into the city, he would then go into the temple proper. He would look at all the things that were taking place, the buying and selling of the sacrifices, the exchange of money, all the things that were taking place. And the hour was late, and then he left. He would cross back over to Kidron Valley, over to the Mount of Olives, and he would go to Bethany, is what Mark's narrative tells us, probably to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He would stay the night, and then very early the next morning, he would begin his two-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And as he is coming back, Mark tells us that as it's Monday morning early, the day after Palm Sunday, he's making his way back to the temple. He would uh, see a fig tree that had a lot of leaves but no fruit, and he would curse that fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree that, that you read about in Mark's gospel. And the fig tree right, dried up from the roots. And in that, there are lessons there that really kind of are tied into what the lessons are here in Jesus cleansing the temple because the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel at that time, we know that there was a lot of leaves, the religious leaders and, and all the religiousness taking place at the feasts of Passover, a lot of activities, a, a lot of things taking place, the rituals and the washings and the sacrifices and all of this, but there is no real fruit. And Jesus, seeing that truth, that fig tree, when there should have been fruit, there was a lot of leaves, it ended up drying up. And, and so it, it pointed to what was happening to Israel. And then he comes in and he cleanses the temple. Now, the cleansing of the temple is recorded in all four Gospels. But here's the thing that you need to keep in mind that a lot of Christians don't know or are not aware of, that in John's Gospel, when he cleanses the temple, that was not during this time. That was earlier in his ministry, in the first year of his public ministry. We know that Jesus in John chapter 2, he performs his first miracle there up at Cana at the wedding feast, turning water into wine. And then he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover and he cleanses the temple in the first year of his ministry. And so this cleansing of the temple is taking place at the end of his ministry, right? Right before he goes to the cross. Now, in John's gospel, he makes a whip of cords. In the synoptic gospels that record the second cleansing, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the writers do not mention that. In John's gospel, when he indicted the religious leaders, he would say, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Here at this time, uh, at this cleansing, he says, my house is a house of prayer, my father's house. You've made it a den of thieves. So there are obviously two cleansings that took place. And again, I've heard teachings on, well, when Jesus, he's really feeling the pressure at this point, and, and he knows he's going to go to the cross, and so uh, the religious leaders are trying to trap him and all of this. So he comes and he curses the fig tree, and then he comes to the temple. He's upset, and so he loses it emotionally. He lost his cool. He, he just blew up. Now, that's something that I can do. I can lose my cool. You know, I can respond to something uh, emotionally to where I end up sinning or, or whatever the case may be. Jesus, in this case, it wasn't that way. He was without sin. He wasn't out of control. He didn't just lose his cool. But he here is 
displaying a righteous anger. And he would do that, as we've already discussed going through Luke's gospel, as he would look at the religious leaders. They were trying to keep people from coming to him, to believing in him. They didn't care about the people. They uh, were ones that only put heavy burdens on the people. And Jesus would look at that with the righteous anger, just like up in Capernaum, when you read about the man with the withered hand that Jesus healed. Then in Mark's gospel, it says the religious leaders are up front there and they're trying to trap him to see if he would heal on a Sabbath day because they thought that it was unlawful to do that. And it says that Jesus looked at them with anger. It was a righteous anger, even as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, that be angry and do not sin. So Jesus here, after he had spent the night at Bethany, I'm sure praying with his father, being there, he comes back and he sees all this that is going on. And as the religious leaders are there overseeing all of this, there was something that was taking place at the temple proper that wasn't right. Now, when he did the first cleansing in his early ministry in John's gospel, they would ask him, what sign do you show us that you do these things? And Jesus would say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they're thinking, as they respond by saying, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. Jesus was talking about the, the temple of his body. He's speaking about his resurrection. And they would always come and they would ask for these signs. And Jesus said, no sign would be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign that he would mention to them was his resurrection. He was speaking about his death, how he'd be buried, and then he would resurrect after three days. Tear this temple down, destroy it. Put me to death, and I'm going to rise again after three days. So this is my father's house, and you've made it a house of merchandise. And then at the end of his ministry, he says, you made it a den of thieves. Now, a couple things, some important implications here to help us understand really what has taken place here. Because otherwise, you can end up with that conclusion, well, Jesus just kind of lost it. And, um, you know, he had a bad moment in all of this. There were a lot of things that led up to what was taking place here. And when you read about the temple, remember, as I mentioned to you, the temple was everything to the Jews. It was the center of spiritual life. There were two temples that we read about in the scriptures. There was the first temple period as David would gather all the materials for the temple, a lot of them. And he would not build the temple. Uh, he was told that you're not going to build the temple, David. Your hands are bloodied. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. He's a man of peace. So Solomon comes on the throne. And he builds the first temple there in Jerusalem. Magnificent building. You can read about it in the Old Testament, how he overlaid it with gold and, and a lot of gold and the cherubims that had wingspans of, uh, if I can remember, that were like uh, the two cherubims, 75 feet long made of pure gold. It was an incredible building. And so in Israel at that time, as the nation was one, the people living around the temple, living around Jerusalem, it was fairly easy for them to come to Jerusalem to bring a, a Passover lamb and, and to celebrate the feast that they had in Jerusalem. 
But what happened was, as most of you know in their history, that after Solomon reigned, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne. And the ten northern tribes rebel against him. Uh, They uh, break off, and they're the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And their first king, his name is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, he's thinking, listen, I don't want you guys to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice and to worship because then you'll want to gather, you know, and be with your brethren, the house of Judah, which included the house or the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, You'll want to get together again, be one nation again, and you'll want to kill me. So don't go to Jerusalem. It's too far. What you need to do is is, um, you need to go to the two places that will provide for you. They built a little temple there at Dan in the very northern part of the country at the base of Mount Hermon uh, where Caesarea Philippi was in that area. And then they built another temple there in Bethel. Now, Bethel may ring a bell with you because remember in the book of Genesis that Jacob, when he is fleeing from his brother Esau, that he goes to a place, he pulls up a, a rock for a pillow. Pretty brutal there. And he has a dream of angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up and he said, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. But in that, the Lord reiterated to him the covenant that he had made with his grandfather Abraham and father Isaac, that Jacob, that all of this I'm going to give to you and reiterates the covenant that would go through him and then his 12 sons being the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. He called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. So that was a very special place. And here comes Jeroboam. He, he makes a, a temple dedicated to the golden calf there in Dan and in Bethel. So all of a sudden, the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, are plunged deep into idol worship. They eventually would go off into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Now, in Jerusalem, uh, there were some good kings, but also there were some terrible kings. And the temple there in Jerusalem, like, for example, under the reign of Ahaz and Manasseh, you can read about it. Manasseh, he ruled for 55 years in Judah and Jerusalem. He closed off the temple. Same with Ahaz. And what they did was when they closed it off, they, they filled it with idols. Um, they trashed it out. Uh, not only was the nation plunged deep into idol worship, the house of Judah. Matter of fact, they've done excavations there in Jerusalem to where in the first temple period, they found just piles and piles and piles of idols just all over the place. And not only in idol worship uh, was big in Judah at that time, in the house of Judah during the reign of Manasseh, but also occultic practices. They were even sacrificing their own children in the arms of Moloch there in the Gehenna Valley next to the temple. It was a very dark time. And the Lord comes along and says, because of the sins of, of Manasseh, you're going to go off into captivity. So they would go off into captivity. Remember that I mentioned last week there were three waves of captivity. 605 B.C., Daniel and his friends went off into captivity by Babylon. Then in 597 B.C., Ezekiel goes off into captivity, and he is there prophesying. And then in 586 B.C., the first temple, Solomon's magnificent temple, is destroyed. Now this is what was taking place when they were off into captivity, the house of Judah. The Lord said that you're going to come back, but they're off into captivity. So it is believed at that time a couple things happened. Number one, we know that the synagogue would begin. 
In the synagogue, as you read about in the Gospels, particularly about the synagogue, that Jesus went into the synagogues and was preaching in the synagogues, that that's like church, a gathering of Jews, and they would read the scriptures. And so in any town or any village, city, where there is 10 Jewish males or more, they would establish a synagogue. Now, how the synagogue worship got started, they believe historians and, and ancient rabbis, that it got started when they were off in the captivity. They couldn't go to the temple. It was no longer the place of worship. So they established the synagogue, and it is believed that Ezekiel was a big part of that. You can read Ezekiel, and you can read how he gathered with the elders. So it's believed that perhaps Ezekiel would start that practice. But also, after the captivity, when they came back and they wanted to rebuild the temple, which they would do, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, that Ezra the priest would come back, and he would begin to put the scriptures together. And the reason that he was putting the Old Testament books together because they were just like separate books um, at that time. Uh, there's this renewed interest in the Old Testament scriptures, the, the books of the law and, and the other books that had been written up to that point. We come to church, and in this one book is 66 books, right? So instead of having all these different books, it was Ezra that began the priest to put the books together. And it was a time of renewed interest once again in the scriptures because what had happened was is that during the time that they were in the land, particularly during those reigns of Manasseh and others, that the people didn't have the word of God. It was just fragments and different books. Matter of fact, after Manasseh reigned, his grandson, Josiah, he would order that the temple, we need to clean it up. There's all these trash and idols. Let's clean it up. And somewhere in the corner that we read uh, in Second Kings, that they found a copy of the law. Scholars are wondering, is that the whole Torah, or was that just the book of Deuteronomy? So they blow the dust off, and Hilkiah, the high priest, brings it to Josiah, and they say, what is that? That's the book of the law. There was no other copies in the land. That's how far away that they had gotten away from the word of God, and, and they didn't know it. So they began to read it, and Josiah was quickened in his heart, and he tore his robe, and he said, we have been living in sin, and that's where the last revival would come in right before they went off into captivity. And that's during that revival, men like Daniel were raised in that revival. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's why they were godly men. And it touched their lives. So that revival takes place. And there was then again idol worship where they would, after the reign of Josiah, would go off into captivity. So they're trying to put the scriptures together in all of this. And they didn't really understand what it was being said until Ezra came along. And just this renewed interest once again. Matter of fact, what was happening before they went off into captivity during that time is reminding me of what is really kind of happening in the church today, unfortunately. That there is less of an interest in the Word of God. That the Word of God is being put aside and for other things. And the Word of God is being taught in very much little fragments and verses here and there rather than being in context. And the great need, I believe, that in the church today is to have a renewed interest in the Word of God and returning to the Word of God. Because a lot of churches, and you know this to be true, has abandoned the Word of God. 
and they are accepting what culture says is acceptable. They are calling sin good and telling us as Christians that we need to, to celebrate different lifestyles. We need to accept homosexuality. We need to accept any kind of sexual immorality, all these things, when the Bible tells us that it's sin. So there needs to be this interest in the Word of God once again and getting back. And that's why I'm committed as your pastor to teach you the whole counsel of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. So this is what was taking place. And what had happened in the first temple and what ended up happening in the second temple. So the second temple, Zerubbabel, pushes all the stuff aside. They rebuild the temple. It's very modest. And, and then all of a sudden in 4 B.C., Herod the Great comes on the scene, right? He's called the Great because he's a great builder. He begins to expand the temple proper. He makes these large courtyards. That's why they were saying, it's taken us 46 years to build this magnificent temple, large stones. And they would continue for uh, another 15 years remodeling it. But in that is this magnificent temple, the second temple, that was called Zerubbabel's temple, but then later was called Herod's temple, that uh, it became just incredible. Matter of fact, the temple itself was 23 stories high. When you see pictures of Jerusalem today in the Dome of the Rock, the, the temple was actually twice as high as that. So what was happening, just as it did in the first temple, they were putting their trust in the temple. They were looking to the temple. In, in Jeremiah, in the first temple period, would come to the people and to the leaders and said, you know, you're trusting in the temple. What you've done is wrong. They said, oh, nothing's going to happen to us because we are the city that has the wonderful temple. The temple, the temple, the temple. And you see, again, that is something that can happen with us. Just as it did in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when they brought the Ark of the Covenant out to do war against the Philistines. We will go get it and it will defeat the Philistines. So reducing God to an it, reducing God to where they were trusting in the temple, they were trusting in their religiousness. Listen, may that never happen here. Calvary Chapel is not about an individual. It's not about me. And may we identify in Christ. Today we live in a society that talks a whole lot about identity. Gender identity, sexual identity, and all of this. Listen, you're a Christian. You identify with Christ. And that's the way that it needs to be always with us. We don't put our trust in buildings or how many people are coming. We don't put our trust in budgets or in a man. It is in Jesus Christ alone, right? Now, those things are a blessing. We'll use those things to further the kingdom of God. But we need to always trust in him, in the Lord. So all of a sudden, the temple's rebuilt. You know, and there's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And all of a sudden, as we see that this temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was modified, it was a magnificent building, and this corruption begins to come in. You see, Jesus, as he's saying here, that you guys, in his first cleansing, that you've made it a, a house of merchandise. It's just all this merchandise and what's taking place. And, and then he said, now it's a den of thieves. It got worse. A den is a place of safety where a bunch of thieves can be safe there and rip the people off. So what was happening? Well, what happened was with the Jews going off into captivity, 
up into you know uh, the Assyrian captivity and then the, uh, the captivity of Babylon, most of the Jews were spread out now. They were spread out throughout the known world. And for them to come to Jerusalem three times a year was not practical because travel is hard, isn't it? It was difficult 2,000 years ago. There was no planes and trains and automobiles. And if you went to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, that was a dream that every Jew had. You spent your life savings. So for you to bring a lamb all the way to Jerusalem to have it be sacrificed, there'd be nothing left of the lamb by the time you got there. So somebody came up with a very good solution. This is what we're going to do. Is that we're going to, when the traveler already gets there, the pilgrim, that we have some pre-approved lambs that they can just come and buy. Matter of fact, what you would do is that you would come, and they've done excavations again to where they believe that under those southern steps, there's three main gates, and we showed you that when we showed you slides of Israel. And the, the worshiper would come in. There was pools under there, and they would come through the, the pools, and they would wash in the pool, a ceremonial cleansing, and then they would go and they would buy a lamb, and then they would go up on the temple and they would have a sacrifice. Remember, there's a lot of sacrificing that is being done here by those lambs at Passover. Did you ever notice that in the Gospels, by the way, it's never recorded that Jesus went through those cleansing pools because he didn't have anything to be cleansed of, he didn't purchase a lamb. Because he is the Lamb of God that is going to be sacrificed. So they would come, and all this activity is coming. And what happened over time is they were beginning to rip the people off. You see, Herod the Great wanted to have this control over the Jews. And Herod the Great knew that the way to have control over the Jews is control the high priestly office. The high priest was seen as the leader. He didn't care if they were the sons of Aaron, the sons of Zadok. That didn't matter to Herod the Great. He wanted to work not with the Hebrew Jews, but with the Hellenist Jews who adopted the Greek culture and the Greek ways. They were still Jews. They're easier to work with. Um, so he picked three families. And in picking those three families, he uh, picked the family of Boathus. He picked a family of Phibus, and he picked a family of Annas. Now, I can work with those three families. I can work with those guys in the priestly office. And he then said, I don't care about, you know, spiritual qualification. I want to work with these Hellenist Jews. But this is what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to give it to the highest bidder. Might as well take advantage of it. So he gave it to the highest bidder, which was the family of Annas. Now, Annas may ring a bell with you. When you read the Gospels, when we get to where Jesus is arrested and he goes on a series of six trials, the very first person that he goes before is Annas the high priest. Then from Annas the high priest, he would go to Caiaphas, who was the official high priest. And people get very confused by that. They say, what was there, two high priests? Was John mixed up? There's, there's no mixing up. The, the Gospels, the Word of God is true. What had happened was Annas that his family bought the high priestly office. Rome would come along and say, hey, we don't want any one high priest in the office too long. So they would come along every so often and say, you got to change the high priest, again, to the highest bidder. Annas is overseeing the selling of sheep and the sacrifices and the exchange of money. 
And again, what was a good idea? That the pilgrim would come, be able to buy sheep. They're selling them all of a sudden at very high prices. And the prices keep getting higher and higher. And the exchange of money, why that? Well, you got to bring a temple offering. And if you bring a temple offering, we're not going to take that Roman coinage because it has an image of Caesar on it. And that's blasphemy. So the exchange of money was at a, 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 you know, a rate to where the people are being cheated and all of this. And that's why Jesus said that you're a den of thieves is what's taking place. So Annas was the power behind the high priestly office, making a killing off the selling the sacrifices and the exchange of money. He's able to buy the high priestly office for all five of his sons. And Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, is the official high priest that has taken place. So Jesus comes in and he sees all this that's going on. But here's the other thing, too. Jesus said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, for all the nations. And what was taking place at this time as well is that many Greeks and Gentiles would come to Jerusalem as well. We see evidence of that in John chapter 12. Remember that right before Jesus goes to the cross, that the Greeks came to, to Andrew and they said, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus responded to them by saying, they want to see me? Tell them that a seed that falls to the ground and is buried will die, and then it will produce fruit. In other words, they want to see me? They must see me in the light of my death and burial and resurrection. And many of the Gentiles, not, you know, a number of them were coming to the temple because they had the court of the Gentiles, they had the court of the women, and then they had the court of Israel. In the court of the Gentiles, they would have a big sign there that said, do not pass this point if you're a Gentile or you will be put to death. As you got closer to the temple, which represented the presence of God. So here are these Gentiles coming to Jerusalem. Why? Because of the magnificent temple. Because greater the temple, greater the God is what they thought. And all of a sudden, this place that was to be a light... And Isaiah, as he talks about in that chapter, Isaiah 56, he's talking about salvation to the Gentiles. You might be thinking, what's that term Gentiles? Just non-Jews. There was the Jews and they, everybody else they saw as Gentiles. And they turned inwardly to where they were no longer a light. It was all about merchandising. The religious leaders are ripping the people off. They're coming and, and, and they're wanting to know about this God of Israel and they can't. They got a big sign that says, don't go past this point. And what they are seeing is nothing any different than what they see in the other Roman cities at the marketplace. It's probably worse at this point here. So Jesus sees it and he's grieved. And he says, my father's house, which is a house of prayer, is now a den of thieves. And he cleanses it out. And he drives out those who sold, you know, and bought, and he overturns the money changers' tables. And then he begins to teach the people, and the people are hanging on to every word that what he is saying. So what does it mean for you and for me here today? Listen, may we, this house of God, be a place where people can see Jesus, and they can hear about Jesus, and they can hear about the gospel and the truth of God's word, People who are wondering, people who are hurting, people who are desperate. When they come to this place, what do they see? 
And unfortunately, there can be a lot of ministries, you see them on the TV, that they're ripping the people off and, the, you know, the health, wealth thing and, you know, seed faith and all of this. I pray that as people come here, that this is a place, this house of prayer, that first of all, that we are praying for this community. We are praying for those that we know that don't know the gospel to be able to have that opportunity to share with them. People were making journeys to Jerusalem. It wasn't easy. And sometimes we need to sometimes expend a little energy to give the gospel and to minister to others, to be a light to them. And it's not always easy. And that is a conviction that the Lord has given to me. I just got back last night, you know, after just a quick trip out to Kansas to do my uncle's funeral and driving out there, hitting every storm that was there between here and there. And it was hard and difficult and hot and muggy. And, you know, many of my relatives I haven't seen for years. And as I was standing at that cemetery there in Little Valley Falls, Kansas, I was like, Lord, thank you that I can be here. And this is my opportunity to talk to relatives and cousins that I hadn't seen for years to give them the gospel. This is a chance to do that. And for you to be able to be that to others. Because we are a society and a culture that's getting further away from the Lord. And I pray that we would be ones that this is a house of prayer for those who are coming in. To get saved, to see Jesus, to see the love of Jesus that is in us to be extended to others, especially in the day in which we're living in, folks. That we would trust in him. And we, he would do a work through the Holy Spirit in us corporately, but also individually. Listen, the temple, second temple destroyed by Rome, right? 70 AD. So you guys got this all down. And he's been building another temple, a greater temple, not made with hands, a living temple that's you and me. So this morning, perhaps, is he speaking to you? And is he saying, are there things that need to be cleansed? Are there things in your life that need to be driven out because it's not pleasing to the Lord? Is there attitudes? Is there carnality? Is there immorality of any sort? Is there sin taking place you know the Lord's been dealing with you and he loves you and you're truly just as he said as he wept over Jerusalem if you would have known what makes for your peace and you are not going to have true peace and joy and experience that abundant life that we read about in Isaiah chapter 55 that hold those of you who thirst come to the waters and drink freely if there is sin and carnality, listen, if the Lord is convicting you because he loves you and he desires for you to drive those things out of your life that are not pleasing to him, that grieve him, that cause him to weep. And in the honesty of our hearts, we can go to the Lord because he's a loving God that forgives and desires for us to move forward in being a light and moving forward in being used of him and growing in our love for him. But I know that there are times, and it's an everyday thing, really, when you, when you have devotions, every day is going to the Lord and saying, Lord, forgive me. Lord, 
Lord, I need this swept away. I need this overturned in my life. I need this to be driven out. And it's a work that he desires to do in me and desires to do in you. What is it that he's speaking to you about? And to be able to go to him and say, Lord, this needs to be driven out. Lord, this needs to be, you know, overturned in my life. And he will meet you there and he'll begin to work in your life. Listen, we live in a day and age where we're not only a witness with the words we speak, but how we live. So what do people see when they look at you, the temple of God? Do they see a man or woman that loves him? Do they see a person who really is showing fruit in their lives of some sort? Listen, I know that they're not going to see perfection in any of us. But in some way and somehow do they see the reality of Jesus Christ being worked out in your life? Or is it that, you know, so involved, so involved in the world that they don't see anything different? They don't see the truth and the goodness of the Lord being radiated from you. So there's some important lessons that are in this. I pray that we would just take to the Lord. For us corporately as a church, listen, Calvary Chapel, let's be a light. And we can get caught up in a lot of other things, but what I pray that we keep a priority is Jesus Christ and him crucified and teaching the scriptures and displaying the love of Jesus Christ to others and staying with the truth because this world desperately needs it. And then you individually, as you go out, to be that light as well. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these lessons and these words, that are, uh, this little vignette that we learned so much from. And, Lord, um, something went wrong in what you had intended for your house to be, a house of prayer for all the nations. And so, Lord, I pray that this house would be a house of prayer, a house where those who don't know the gospel come and they hear it and they hear the gospel and they can see Jesus his love his provision his forgiveness his goodness and so father i pray that as we gather in this place, there may be some that are here right now in this service that you've never made a commitment to Jesus. He loves you because, you see, in a few days from this time we're reading, he would go to a cross to die for your sins because he loves you. And the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. There's no hope apart from him going to the cross, which he did. And dying for your sins, and he rose again from the grave. He's alive. He conquered sin and death. And now the Bible says, come. Turn to Jesus. Believe on him. And those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's faith alone in him and what he has done for you, who he is, the Son of God, that he's alive, believing in the resurrection. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Jesus would say, and if you open up your heart to him, he will come in. He will forgive you. He will fellowship with you. He'll make you a new person. He is your salvation. There is none other. 
Will you do that right now? He loves you. You pray, Jesus, I come to you, and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me, and you're alive. You rose from the grave, and you're knocking on the door of my heart, so I ask you to sit upon the throne of my life as Lord and Savior. And I thank you for today. And I thank you for saving me. Help me to live for you and to know you. To walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer as one of my elders is up front here, find him, Jim, here, and tell him the decision you made. And we want to encourage you, give you some things. But while we just got a minute, for all of us, are there things... Lord, we as a church, to be in prayer, to drive out those things that are unlike you, the pride, the anything. Things that don't really matter, that don't produce fruit. And in our own lives individually, sin, carnality. Lord, just attitudes that are wrong. Drive them out of our hearts. Cleanse us, Lord. We thank you that we are cleansed with the blood of Jesus. Continue to do that cleansing work. Wash us with the water of the word. May we be a light to others that wish to see Jesus, that desperately need to see light. So, Lord, we thank you for today, for this time. Bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good. Would you please stand?